That was nice. I got a response. Thank you. Thank you for that. Felt homey. Uh, great to see you. And if we have not met, my name is Brian Haybig. And if we have met, my name is still Brian Haybig. That was Tim Udodge who was leading us in worship. And, uh, but if we haven't met, I would love to meet you. I'm so glad you're here. And if there's anything that we can do for you or questions that we can answer, we would love to, to do that. Um, as, uh, as you've already heard by now, this is, this is something that we really don't do hardly ever. I mean, Christmas, there's emphasis, and um, Easter Sunday, certainly there's emphasis, but it's very few and far between that we have any kind of an emphasis Sunday. But we do this each year. Uh, there's a Sunday usually in the spring, and it's adoption and orphan care emphasis. And so because of that, we're going to take a break from what we've been studying. And if you haven't been here, we've been studying the life of David, King David. But we're going to take a break from that and look at a psalm, Psalm 82. And this is one of the psalms that's not by David. Most of them are, but this one is by a man named Asaph. So we're going to just look at this short psalm, Psalm 82. Let me ask you this before I read it. You've, you've heard the saying, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And that's one of those expressions, it's not completely true, but it's, it's mostly true. I mean, I, you, you, even if you've got incredible connections, you do sort of need a, a baseline competence to do most things or, or to stay in your vocation or whatever. But, but uh, you may have that baseline competence, some skill, some ability, but there's people who have a lot more skill, a lot more ability, a lot more knowledge, but they don't, they don't accomplish what you accomplish or they don't have what you have because of connections. And it, it would be interesting if we could just kind of like run some sort of little research program. We're not going to do this to find out just who all we're connected to. And I want you to even think about your own life because you may be sitting there thinking like, I'm not, I'm not a celeb. You know, I'm not like some, I'm not a power broker. But I want you to think about maybe when you got a job that others were very qualified for, but you sort of did an end run around the process because of someone you knew. Or maybe, uh, just to kind of keep it a little bit more light, uh, maybe a, a, sport, a sports event that you got access to or box seats that you got access to, and it was not through the normal process, it was through someone you knew. Or that maybe in your work you hit some kind of snag uh, or maybe even made a mistake and there's going to be some negative repercussion or maybe there was some fee that you're going to have to pay and somebody just kind of went to bat for you and said, let me make a call and I can make that go away. Those are connections that are in our lives. And I want to ask you this question before I read the passage. What are those connections there for? And I don't know how we would answer that question. I mean, honestly, I'm I'm not quite sure how I would answer the question. I know that the way I typically do life is, to whatever degree I have connections, I mostly live as if they are there to optimize my experience. To, like, get access to the best things possible, to have the best case scenario, to have the most obstacles ironed out. But let me ask the question again. Uh, if we believe, and I'm not assuming everyone here does, but as a Christian congregation, if you believe in an all-powerful God and that everything that's in our lives is by his orchestration, and we do have these connections, what are they there for? 
And I would venture to say that this psalm is a window into the answer from God's point of view. Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth. For you shall inherit all the nations. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, even as we've just heard from one of the psalmists, we want to pray with another psalmist that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your word you would allow us to see that it's uh, more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. It's sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Uh, if, you, if you've been around downtown Prez for any time, you may have heard someone say something uh, along these lines. Well, probably, especially those with children, is that uh, we have a, a youth group here, you know, for middle schoolers, high schoolers. We have a youth group. We have a growing youth group. It's not a huge youth group, and then usually we say, yet, you know, because we've just got this enormous group of children coming up, and uh, we're going to look up in 10 years, and uh, they're going to be teenagers, and it's, it's going to be interesting to see how it, how it all shakes out. So we're meeting with the Bon Secure Wellness Arena right now about um, future youth activities, but... But uh, I want you to, and this might be hard to envision, but just try it. I want you to envision that it's uh, 15 years from now. And so little children in our congregation are now uh, teenagers and maybe getting into their early 20s. And I want you to picture that, uh, let's say, 20% of them are ending up in prison. 20% of our children are ending up in prison. What, what do you think you would start to hear in our conversations? And, uh, and what sort of initiatives do you think that we would become interested in? Because, you know, like if that, if that was your child, let's say you had a son and he's uh, 19 and he committed a crime and he's incarcerated and this is happening to all these, friend, all these you know, friends' children that you know and that grew up with your children, that there's, there, especially young men, they're going to prison you would begin to say, okay, look, I know. I'm not saying that they should get away with crime. I know when you break the law, there has to be repercussions. There has to be justice. But, I mean, something's gone incredibly wrong when this many of our children, especially our sons, are ending up in prison. We've got to do something. Like, clearly, culturally, something's broken and it's not working. We would become extremely interested in that. 
Now the question is, right now are we? Because that is going on in the United States. And if you want to read uh, something free that you can have access to online about this, there was a cover story in the Atlantic Monthly last fall, the October edition. And it's a piece called The Black Family in the Age of Mass Incarceration by Ta-Nehisi Coates. You could look it up online. And um, one major book that came out about this several years ago is called The New Jim Crow. But it's about the rate of incarceration of African-American young men. Now, again... We want to be quick to say, look, when people break the law, you have to do something. There has to be justice. You can't just get away with crime, right? Right. But something's broken. Something's not working. Now, again, are we up in arms about it? And I would say, largely speaking, no. Just this past week, a Facebook friend of mine was posting about an an event, a pretty large event that he was attending in Washington, D.C., about this issue Mass incarceration, especially in the African-American young male population. I, I knew nothing about it. But he, what, he didn't just know about it, but he was there in D.C. attending it. And guess what? He at one time was incarcerated. And he is African-American. And he was in prison when he was a young man. And he works with a demographic where that happens all the time. And so he's quite literally has skin in the game. All right, that is, and and I'm, I'm saying I knew nothing about it. He doesn't just know about it, he's there. Why? Because it touches his life directly. And here's something that, that this is just how the world works. There are such things or such people as elites. And that actually isn't necessarily a derogatory word. Sociologists, people who study sociology and culture, will use the term elite. And they won't use it to say this person's better than that person. It's just to recognize that in every culture and in every country, there are some people who have a disproportionate impact on the culture. You know, this person doesn't have as much money and this much influence. They kind of live their lives and it doesn't make that much of a splash. But this person, because of their position, because of their money, they have a disproportionate influence. In that culture, this person is an elite. And it's weird to say this. It's weird to say this about us. It's weird to acknowledge it about oneself. But this room is full of elites, Does that mean that we're better than anybody? No. But let's acknowledge that in this room is an unusual level of education and influence and connections. Where where does our heart naturally trend? Our heart naturally trends toward other elites. Where does God's heart trend? And there's a guy, there's a professor, I think he's still at Yale, named Nicholas Walterstorff, and he came up with, with a term. It's actually on the front of the bulletin. It, he, he calls it the quartet of the vulnerable. And the quartet of the vulnerable are these people groups that you keep hearing named in Scripture. 
And it's not just godly people talking about this quartet. God talks about this quartet all the time. And who is it? The widow, the fatherless, or the orphan, the alien, or the immigrant, and the poor. And over and over and over in Scripture, in the law, in the prophets, in the Psalms, in the wisdom literature, and in the New Testament, in the Gospels themselves, over and over and over, God's heart clearly trends toward the quartet of the vulnerable. So I I wanted to say that going into this because you're going to see some people in this psalm and they're actually going to be called gods. And when you hear gods, I want you to think not, we don't kind of typically use that term to talk about other people. Although I did have a friend that when I spoke at a retreat for him and I had to send in a blurb, like a little bio blurb about myself, he said, hey, I'll make you sound like a god when we get through. Okay, so like that's about as close as I've ever heard somebody say that. He didn't, by the way. I still sounded like I kind of am. But, um, but I want you to think in terms of elites. This psalm has, a, has really, um, it's kind of a courtroom setting. So let's think about it in, in this term. First off, just the courtroom itself. And then the problem, the problem in the courtroom, and then the prayer at the end. Because the courtroom, the problem, and the prayer. Listen to how the psalm starts. It says, God has taken his place in the divine council. Now, what's the divine council? Is this something in heaven? Is this like God in the midst of, I don't know, angels or something? Then it says this, in the midst of the gods... He holds judgment. And then uh, down in verse 5, uh, verse 6, it says, you, I said, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Now, as I studied this psalm, there's some, there's some divergence of opinion about who the gods are. Some Old Testament scholars have said, it seems like God in this psalm is speaking to false gods, addressing what we would call idols. But to me, the linchpin for why that's not, not the case is, is and, and in some ways the definitive response to it, is in the Gospel of John in the New Testament, Jesus quotes this psalm. This is very, so hang with me here for a second. Very important. In John chapter 10, there's a group of people who are ready to stone Jesus for blasphemy. And he asked them, why are you picking up stones to stone me? And they say, it's because you, a man, make yourself out to be the son of God. In in other words, this premise is blasphemous, that that a man could be God or be the son of God. And then Jesus, in that way that he has, he quotes Scripture back to the Scripture experts. He quotes Psalm 82 and says, well, what about that place in the Word where God says, I have said to you, you are gods. And he identifies the people who heard that as human beings. So the way I'm approaching Psalm 82, if this still makes sense, is that when, when it's speaking about God addressing gods, who it's talking about are human leaders, uh, people who wield authority, people who wield justice, people who wield cultural influence, haves, 
are addressed. And there are other places in Scripture that call them gods. I'm not going to get into that. But it's talking about human beings. It also says this. You gods that I'm talking to, you're going to die. Idols wouldn't really do that. They don't really exist anyway. So who we're talking about are human beings. And what does it say? God takes his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. It's almost like saying, in, 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 this, in this culture especially, men who were used to being the authorities, men who were used to like being the judges in their culture, they're used to sitting in judgment. It's like them in a large council And um, to use our language, instead of when they walk in, someone saying, all rise for the honorable so-and-so, it's as if they are all in a space and they are being told, all rise because God is present. From whom all this authority comes. Now, let's just stop there for a second and think about even what that says. That there is such a thing as God-given authority, that, that even in the Old Testament, God-given authority can be so real that the person who possesses that authority can be spoken of and spoken to as Elohim, as, as gods. It's kind of a tough pill to swallow. Like we want power, and then to find out that you actually have real God-given power and authority is sort of a tough pill to swallow. Like, for instance, since I was talking about kids, if you're a parent, you really do actually possess God-given authority. That you're not to wield it in tyranny. Hopefully it's wielded against the backdrop of lots of hugs and kisses and warmth and humor and togetherness, but you really do possess real authority. Like, you don't have to put okay at the end of every order. I need you to be a buddy and clean up your room, okay? Like you actually can say, clean up your room and the world won't end. That's a judgment call, but you possess real authority. Uh, But this is the other part of it. Those in this life who possess real God-given authority, it's God-given and so we're accountable. We give an account for how we wielded our influence. We give an account for how we harnessed our connections, how we used authority. Let, let, me use, I, I, let me quote a verse I never get to quote because I don't know how to feel about quoting it to you, but this is part of God's Word. This is, from Hebrew, this is from Hebrews 13, and listen to what it says about church leaders. It's talking about like elders. Obey your leaders and submit to them and that's not how we normally think about church leadership. We kind of feel like we made it up or like it's socially constructed. But there are other passages like this in the New Testament. But let me keep reading. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Like the pastors and the elders of downtown Presbyterian Church will have to give an account for how we pastored, how we were elders. That's for real. God-given authority is real. God-given authority is accountable as it is for these judges, these gods, all right? So that's the courtroom. What's the problem? Well, let me ask you this. For judges in Israel, all right, this is an Old Testament psalm. 
for, for people who possess authority in Israel, what should be the big thing for them? Like, what should be the block and tackle? And I use a lot of sports metaphors, as you know. Kidding. What should be the block and tackle for an Israelite judge? Should it be protect law-abiding Israelite citizens? Should it be protect the property of law-abiding Israelite citizens? Should it be restrain crime in Israel? What is the big priority according to God? Verses 3 and 4. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Now, that might sound like, well, of course God is going to say that. I mean, like, yeah, do, do good things for people that, that need help. But this was such a radical thing for Israel's God to say. Uh, there's a Sri Lankan scholar named Vinath Ramachandra, not a household name. And when he's looked at this, this theme in Scripture of how the God of the Bible, his heart trends toward the quartet of the vulnerable. The widow, the orphan, the alien, the poor. Over and over and over. He calls that in, that, in that cultural setting, scandalous justice. And here's what he says. Here's the description. He writes that in virtually all the ancient cultures of the world, the power of the gods was channeled through and identified with the elites of society. The kings, the priests, military captains, not the outcasts. To oppose the leaders of society then was to oppose the gods. Now here's what Ramachandra says. But here in Israel's rival vision, it's not high-ranking males, but it's the orphan the widow, the stranger with whom Yahweh takes his, his stand. His power is exercised in history for their empowerment. Completely radically different from the surrounding cultures. So, all right, God has the gods, little g. God has the elites. And... All rise because God is present and give an account to him. What is the metric for measuring what kind of job they're doing? What have you done for the quartet of the vulnerable? All right, so what is the problem? Look in verse 2. This is God asking the question, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? In verse 5, they the gods, the judges. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. In other words, what's the problem? The problem is that these gods, these judges, these elites, they do what judges and little g gods and elites almost always do. Their heart trends toward the other elites. And so that's where their energies go. And that's where their vocational work goes. And that's where their concern goes. And it doesn't go to the vulnerable, vulnerable because they aren't vulnerable, nor are their friends. 
um, I, I, I asked, you know, it's just, it's, it's a really amazing thing to think about uh, the abilities and the knowledge and the experience and the training that this room represents. And I emailed one of you this week just to ask this question as I was studying this. What are ways that vulnerable children struggle to experience justice that we just don't think about? And, uh, and I emailed this to a member of our church who not only has his experience in uh, foster care and adoption, but is an attorney and knows the legal side of it. And um, man, when I threw that softball, I got quite an email back. Let me just read a few parts. First off, prioritizing funds in the state budget. If we truly value children in life, our legislature would increase the budgets for South Carolina DSS. South Carolina Guardian Ad Litem programs, uh, program, Foster Care Review Board, Family Court Judiciary, etc. Like, I can't even convey to you how not on my radar that is. Why? I wasn't in the foster care system. None of my friends were. None of my ancestors experienced it. It's just not on my radar. But the caseload, apparently, that someone in DSS is supposed to carry, like how many cases can you really effectively work on at any one time? The figure that this church member gave was 25. Uh, In this area, most are dealing with 75, 80, 85 cases. It's unsustainable. We know it's unsustainable. The only way to do something more sustainable is to hire more and better and better workers. So you've got to fund it. Is that something that churns inside of you? It hasn't churned inside of me. Why? It's not on my radar. Why? Because it doesn't touch me. At some level, I'm an elite and I trend toward other elites. That's what comes naturally to me. And it comes naturally to you. That is the problem. I mean, think about it this way. And I, I gosh, I, all right. I feel, like, I feel on thin ice as I say this. So can I just acknowledge I feel on thin ice as I say this. But I, something that we as a church have wanted is let's not kill people with more and more church programs. And we really try to stick to that. Like, Let's not always be telling you you've got to drive back to 435 West Washington to do more church crud. We, we try to free your lives. Like, we do some things, but we love it when you're out there doing your stuff. Like, this weekend, we had a women's retreat, which was, what, four hours long? And they had a food truck, which makes it cool. Okay? And we've got an emphasis Sunday. That's about as heavy as we get. Now, think about this. Uh, Stephanie announced about this Friday there's going to be a panel discussion here. And not to be too self-congratulatory, I would call it like a best-case scenario. It's, it is members of our church uh, sort of across the spectrum of experience with everything from foster care to respite care to actually adopting to just supporting those who are doing this to finding out more about international adoption, finding out more about the Guardian Ad Litem program, whatever. Church members talking about, like, here's what we're learning there's so much we don't know, but here, like, here's maybe mistakes that I made that you, you could know better and not make those mistakes. All of it done not to scold, 
not to like make anyone feel bad that they're not adopting a child this year, but just to say, wow, how can we help one another come to grips with what it looks like in particular to care for the fatherless? Now, let me ask you this. When the announcement was made, was it even on the radar of plausibility that you would take a Friday night and go? Because let me just tell you, we're not going to take roll. And we don't have a video monitoring facial recognition system to, like, know who was here and who wasn't here. But would it even be plausible for you to go to something like that? Because it's a Friday night. Or must Friday night mean that is when I optimize my experience? In the Word of God, to move toward the poor, the widow, the fatherless, the alien is not, is not like a heroic fringe area of knowing God. God, at points in his word, says, identifying with them, that almost equals knowing me. And I leave that with you. I'm not trying to drum up numbers for this Friday night, but I'm using it as a gauge to say, is this something where you think, that's, that's what my life is supposed to touch upon? Well, what's the prayer? at the end of this psalm. Asaph prays this, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. And I wonder, what did Asaph mentally picture that looking like? And I kind of think, I don't know, but I think, he probably pictured something like John the Baptist pictured. You know, when John the Baptist came to pave the way for the Messiah... It's just interesting. <laughs> I'm not trying to be irreverent, but it's interesting the way he talks. He'll say things like, hey, look, his winnowing fork is in his hands. And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. It's almost like he's saying, all of you need to repent, but man, some of you aren't, and you're going to be toast. He really, he really is, even though he's in the New Testament, he's the last Old Testament prophet. And then this man comes, and what does he do? He's poor. He comes from have-nots. And then he falls into a complete system of injustice. And he's killed by it. And, and, And here's the amazing thing, is that when God answered Asaph's prayer, and he arose, and he came to judge the earth, He experienced justice and injustice. When Jesus came, he was punished for our indifference to the poor and the widow and the orphan. If you are in Christ Jesus, all the divine judgment that we deserve for our apathy, it fell on him. You're free. You're not going to be punished. He fell under justice. And he fell under injustice. I mean, what Asaph couldn't have imagined is when he says, God, do something for the poor. 
arise and judge the earth and do something for the poor. He never could have imagined that God would become a poor man. That he would grow up a Jew in a world controlled by Romans and know what it is to experience racism and marginalization. And he did. And you know what? It's when that good news gets in your heart that God's not going to punish me, that he's not about to lower the boom for how crummy I've been at caring for the least of these, and that the way he took that away from me is he became the poor. He became the marginalized. That your heart can begin to move toward people who have been in the margins of your heart, they can, begin, they can begin to move toward the center. I mean, let's pray that would happen. I mean, who doesn't need that? Let me end by saying this. I've heard several people, um, I think they're quoting Stephen Covey, the guy that wrote Seven Habits, Highly Effective People. I think it's Stephen Covey. But saying that, you know, when you think about what kind of life you want to live, do this. Imagine the funeral... Imagine your funeral. You are going to die, as the psalm says. And then picture what would you like people to say about you at your funeral and then work back. So if you'd love for people to say, man, you know, she was such and such, then live a life where people could say that. And, you know, I was thinking about, all right, well, what would be a word I would like people to say at my funeral? If I die soon, I'm not saying you'll have to say this. I'm just saying, like, what what I'd like standing here as I'm talking about it is, um, you know, it'd be great if somebody could say that, you know, he was godly. He was, he was godly. What is it to be godly? Is it to just incessantly read Christian books? What is it to be godly? The best definition I ever heard of what it means to be godly is this. To be godly is to be like God. It's to be a man or a woman who's like God. Do, do you know what it is when you really love and go to bat for and use connections for and move toward the widow, the orphan, the alien, the poor. You know what that is? It's not liberalism. It's being godly. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, please, we pray, uh, grant us repentance. Grant us a turning to you. If we have seen these things as marginal, uh, as something for other people, we pray that that quartet would more and more go into the center of our own hearts. We who were poor, we who needed adopting, and you came and rescued us. We pray that you would renovate our hearts with your love, We pray that we would move toward others not in guilt, but in great freedom. That you would transform us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.